From the Lean Enterprise Institute in Boston, this is the WLEI Podcast, where we share stories of people making the world better through lean thinking and practice. For more information about LEI, including how we can help you apply lean thinking, please visit lean.org. Hi, I'm Josh Howell. I'm happy today to introduce a conversation between Tom Ehrenfeld, an editor at the Lean Enterprise Institute, and Amy Edmondson the Novartis Professor of Leadership and Management at the Harvard Business School. You may know that earlier this year, Amy delivered a keynote at LEI's Lean Summit. The summit's a gathering of the Lean community where we share with, learn from, and inspire and encourage one another. I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that the 2020 Lean Summit will be held on April 6th and 7th in Carlsbad, California. I hope to see you there, but back to WLEI. On this episode, Tom and Amy discuss psychological safety as explored in Amy's recent book, The Fearless Organization creating psychological safety in the workplace for learning, innovation, and growth. They talk about the role of psychological safety for organizations and people who are practicing lean thinking. It's really a wonderful conversation. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Without further ado, here's Tom and Amy. All right, so I'm sitting with Amy Edmondson, Harvard Business School professor, and we're going to talk about her book, The Fearless Organization, and the um, importance of creating organizations where people have psychological safety and the benefits it provides and the need for it in today's world. So, Amy, uh, thanks for joining and uh, thanks for doing this. You're welcome. Okay. Tell me, I'm going to start by just asking you to tell me uh, about your book and we'll go from there. Okay, so my book is the result of two decades of research and on, on psychological safety, and I guess I should explain what that is, um, it, because I don't, I don't think the term gives itself away completely. So what it is, is a, a climate, a workplace climate, where people fully believe that they can speak up, that they can offer their ideas speak up about concerns, and just they can bring their full self to work. And this book is the result, as I said, of t- two decades of research. So why now? And, and I think the answer to that is twofold. One, Google, two years ago, did a big study where the premise, the purpose of the study was to find out which teams performed better and why. And to make a very long story short, they came to the conclusion that the answer was psychological safety, Hmm. that that was the determining factor. And they, you know, Google, they have lots of data, they have um, lots of analytic prowess, so they tried everything, and they looked very carefully at the problem, and ultimately found that what really mattered for team effectiveness at Google was psychological safety. Hmm. And that got a lot of attention, and after a while, people were talking about Google's concept of psychological safety. And I thought, okay, well, you know, maybe now is the time to document just how much research there is behind this idea, you know, before and after right. uh, Google's very, very good work. Um, and then I think the other reason was I just had not, after all this time, I had not put these ideas into a format that was really accessible to managers and practitioners of all kinds. It's interesting to me that you've done um, a lot of your research and work in the medical field and looked at the way that kind of nurses interact and the need for people to feel um, comfortable, confident, asking questions. 
what is it about the kind of you know the 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 gamba the mm -hmm. workplace of the mm -hmm. of the hospital unit say that um, makes this important? You know the hospital workplace is in many ways an extreme case huh? of what most organizations face, and by extreme I mean the work is that much more customized, high stakes, uncertain, and deeply interdependent. So start with customized. No two patients are alike. Okay. And they might have the same condition, but there will be subtle differences that good clinicians have to pay attention to. So they're not just doing routine work over and over. Um, they're rarely, you know, the, the, the input conditions are such that you don't know exactly what you're going to see at work today. So there's, a, there's that enormous um, sort of variability uh, that they have to deal with. And the care process is inherently interdependent, meaning you know, the average hospitalized patient is going to be seen by and interact with over 60 different caregivers right. who must be in close coordination with each other to do good work. So if uncertainty, customization, complexity, and interdependence sound familiar, sound like things you see in your workplace, I would argue that healthcare is a, just a slightly more extreme version of what most of us face and what is on the rise in most organizations. So it was a good petri dish. It was a good place to look at how, you know, what makes it possible for people to speak up, what happens when they don't, um, how, do you, you know, how do you improve, improve the climate so that the people are able to really bring their full self to work and you can improve the processes accordingly. What's interesting about healthcare is that there is a premium placed on standard work, on kind of the value of mm -hmm. checklists, for mm -hmm. instance, in terms of establishing con operational conditions that enable people to kind of do their best work. And so it seems like there's a blend of um, prescribed ways of acting combined with this like extra credit mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. that's not the best way to say it, but you know, a way for judgment. Uh, for judgment. Yep. Um, so what needs to be in place, maybe operational practices or kind of work standards that go hand in hand with uh, creating a safe or fearless organization? Well, you know, I think of it as a, a, fra a framing problem, okay. right? Because what you, what you say is exactly right, you know, that there is a, and by the way, this is a relatively new, meaning the last decade or so, emphasis in healthcare on standardization. I mean, it, the, the old image or frame for healthcare was clinical judgment rules. And that is, a, it's, a, you know, it's a uniquely professional idea. You show up, I'm well trained, I'm an expert, I, I figure it out, I diagnose and then I treat. And initially the idea that there could be any standard procedures at all was almost resisted strongly because you're impinging on my clinical judgment. And so the framing challenge became, and quite, it has worked quite powerfully, saying, oh no, right? I mean, what, what, the, what the standardization does is free up your mind for judgment. So here's, let's just make sure that the simple stuff is specified beautifully mm -hmm. so nothing slips between the cracks, right? Here's what, here's what this kind of patient, this kind of condition needs, let's put it in a protocol, let's make sure we pay attention to it, 
And I think clinicians in any good organization are invited to deviate when their professional judgment suggests they need to do something different. And in really good places, not only are they invited to deviate when their judgment suggests to, they should do so, but also to document it. Not for you know reasons of covering your tracks or anything else, but document it because that's how the system learns. And as we document deviations, one of two things can happen. One is we realize that the protocol needs to adjust because the good clinicians are saying it's not quite there yet. And the other is that the protocols become more fine-grained, right? meaning we have more, more protocols that are more customized to different groups of, of patients, you know, more, more based on you know, weight or age or whatever, whatever it might be. So in both cases, you can see that the organization is learning from the documenting of the deviations. So it's a kind of a classic learning loop. I would suspect the barriers to this are cultural as much as, say, operational. Probably the barriers are even more cultural than operational. I mean, the operations are, other than some pretty sophisticated IT systems to, you know, to, to um, support clinical care and to capture the data of the real care, um, that's, that's, a, that's a, probably a fairly challenging operational problem, but one not, certainly not out of our, our collective reach, but the, the, the cultural challenge, I think, is even greater. And particularly, oh, sorry, particularly in an industry that has celebrated individual accomplishment, individual right. judgment, individual diagnostic and clinical skill. Right. In healthcare or anywhere. In healthcare or anywhere, but particularly healthcare and the professions in, right. in, in general. But so getting, you know, shifting the culture where people really celebrate, you know, speaking up and asking questions and collaborating is, is, is a big one. And, and celebrate, even celebrate the protocols or the standardization as a, as a support rather right. than an inhibitor. Right. And I got the sense, I'm sorry, I got the sense reading this, even the, the back end that there's kind of a, a an implicit call to arms to leadership to behave in a way that fosters and generates trust. There's a great quote <laughs> where you say, perhaps the best way to experience psychological safety is to act as if you have it already. <laughs> it's a great it's that's a great true. Quote. And that's that is you're absolutely right to call that leadership. And and so leadership with a small L, meaning any one of us can exercise leadership. We can we can decide to lead, right? right? We can decide to set the right tone. We can decide to take small risks to help our colleagues, uh, to help our customers or patients, versus viewing leadership as only something that is the job of the people on top. And yet, I, I just want to like say, say more. It feels to me like leaders are trained to command and control and dictate and order, you know, and it just seems like this is a role they're kind of cast in, even if they uh, uh, raise to this level. And so... I, I think we, I think you're right that we, as a society, have long 
celebrated that model of leadership. But I don't think, I think, I think that model is showing its age all over the place. I mean, I think more and more people recognize that um, something that is sometimes called servant leadership or um, but enlightened leadership is a very real, it starts with a very real recognition that nobody has all the answers, even the top leader in any organization you name. And a, a thoughtful leader is going to recognize, you know, an effective leader recognizes that. Right. And therefore um, is more worried about not knowing what's really going on than almost everything else. Like is, is aware that he or she is at great risk if they don't know what's going on and is also aware that people are predisposed to hold back and not tell you what's going on. So very few thoughtful leaders today believe they have all the answers and their job is just to command and intimidate people into executing on those at answers. They realize in, in contrast that innovation requires ideas from all over um, and even just continuous learning in more routine operations requires input from everybody. So what is these kind of safety building leaders? What's their behavior like? What does it, what is it um, feel like for one? Mm -hmm. But I don't know mm -hmm. if that's even the right question. What yeah. is it, what is, what are the um, elements of working in a fearless organization, what do um, yeah. followers experience, and what do they? What practices, types of practices, um, do they develop? Uh, so you know, I I want to I want to make sure, in answering that question, I want to make sure I'm clear that I see this as a very strong stance, right? That okay. you know that, that leaders um, can be, um, they're. They are they are strong. Um, they are influential. They matter, and don't let that take away from the two qualities I'm going to name as most important. And okay. I think it's humility and curiosity. And of course, they go hand in hand. But maybe I'll start with curiosity. Right? Curiosity, because if you're someone who recognizes fully that you don't have all the answers, that ought to trigger a curious stance. Right? You ought to be almost insatiably interested in learning what you don't know and curious about what others know and curious about what the customers want and curious about where we're headed next in some industry or another. So, so that, that, that sort of, and what does that really mean? That means an ability to keep the natural human curiosity that all children have alive as an adult or rekindle it in some way. And I do think, as I said, that starts with a frame of recognition that I don't know everything. And, and if I'm curious and recognize I don't know everything, that also, that is a kind of humility. And so it's not humility saying, oh, I don't have anything to add or I don't know anything. No, it's a humility that um, we might call situational humility, which is that the, the very nature of the situation we find ourselves in, whether you call it VUCA or something else, whether it's more specific, i.e. patients' lives are at stake or our industry is facing huge challenges, calls for humility because we just don't know, right. you know what, what's going to work at time zero. So, so that, that sort of, that, it's a strong stance driven by curiosity, openly humble about what we don't know and, and as well as 
you know, owning what we do know. And those, both those two features, you know, humility and curiosity, really invite, I mean, they, they naturally invite others to step up, right? So what does that feel like for others? It feels like, um, wow, I matter, right? It feels like um, it matters that I come to work today. It feels that I, it matters what I have to say, and what I have to say is, is welcome. It, people, it's not that everything I have to say is going to be instantly celebrated or put to good use, but it, it's that I believe, you know, I believe it to be welcome right. uh, when leaders show up that way. You know, what are some other consequences of insufficient psychological safety? And then kind of what, what can people do at their own level mm -hmm. to uh, start to build it? Two very different questions. Let's, let's start with the first. Let's start with the first one. So the consequences. Cons the consequences of a lack of psychological safety in the workplace fall into two big categories. And category one are, you know, failure risks. Like there that we, and and um, and the failure risks come in two categories as well. Okay. One being you know human safety risks. You know someone in a in a factory isn't wearing their safety equipment and someone else sees it but feels it's not possible to speak up. You know, so, so the psychological safety has just, the lack of psychological safety directly increases the risk of, of a safety or, or, or um, you know, accident uh, violation happening. Uh, so, so one, you know, one type are the risks, and, and those are, you know, Wells Fargo, for example, and others are business failures right. that right. did not get averted, that could have gotten averted if we were having thoughtful, candid, open conversations. So whether it's the human safety concerns or the business concerns, psychological safety is mission critical to averting avertable failures, you know, avoidable failures. The other kind of, you know, big issue from a lack of psychological safety is you miss opportunities. You miss you miss um, innovation possibilities, or you know, recognizing the ideas that people have, whether those are ideas about what customers' needs really are, or ideas about a, a way to improve the efficiency of a line just a little bit. Right? Those sure. those are the lost opportunities that you never. They're invisible. You'll you know you never know the idea you didn't hear that could have been, you know, a game-changing idea. And so, you know, the, the failure types come to light eventually and then we, you know, look back and we analyze the case and we find as, as one and, and an important contributing factor, we find this lack of psychological safety. But the opportunity side, the lost opportunities, most of the time we never know right. that they were lost. Right. The, the, the idea that didn't get expressed never gets anywhere beyond the person's head who didn't express it. Right. And no business can afford to not care about that today. If you're not innovating, if you're not improving constantly, eventually someone else will replace you in the minds and hearts of customers. Yes. No. <laughs> um, okay, so... Uh, one thing I want to ask about is uh, this notion of scale. 
you write largely about uh, larger organizations. Mm-hmm. So how do you, I mean, one way of asking this is how do you scale mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. trust? How do you form yeah. it in small organizations, which in my experience tend to have less formal structures and practices? Um, That's true. How do you kind of just form it at a, it, 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 if it's a gut level, but how do yeah. you, how do you, how do you, you know, generate it small and how do you then operationalize it and, and, and scale it? I mean, one, one way to answer that question is you don't scale it. Okay. Or at least not. I mean, I do want it everywhere, right? I want, I want, right. um, I want to spread psychological safety as far and wide in as many organizations as possible. Uh, but I don't, I don't think scale is the right word, even though it's a great word, right? No, I'm not, great, I'm, great. not criticizing the word, but scale almost implies we're going to roll it out and we're not going to roll it out. I mean, I think we're going to try to, it's more like contagion. Um, we're, we're going to try to, um, you know, increase the chances that um, lots of people in our organization come to work and have this kind of work climate. Now, how do we do that? Well, I think it, it, ideally, so this is the ideal situation, it does start at the top. You know, ideally you have a, a thoughtful leader at or near the top of the organization who recognizes the VUCA world in which we work and um, spends considerable time spread, spreading that message. You know, just making sure people know uh, that they know that they don't have all the answers, that we're up against it, we need you, right? So they're, they're, they're doing what they can to create a legitimate and believable rationale for why your voice matters. And, and that's, that's important, right? They're setting the right tone at the top. Um, they're acknowledging their mistakes. They're, you know, they're open about their, uh, their aspirations uh, to, to do better. And yet, or you know, in addition, where psychological safety really matters is where the work is getting done. And of course, work is getting done everywhere. But, but work is, is getting done in a kind of inherently specific local way. So what, so probably a background fact that's good to point out at this point is that in every organization I've studied, and I think the other's research is consistent with this, psychological safety varies from group to group or unit to unit within an organization. In other words, it's very much a local phenomenon. There might be a kind of, you know, overall, this organization's better than that organization, and yet still you'll find you know, some work groups, let's say bank branches or, you know, restaurants in a chain, where it's just better than others. So why might that be? Well, an obvious answer is that the local manager, you know, the local leadership, the the proximal boss matters. And that would be a very, uh, that would be an answer that is quite supported by data. And so this is a long-winded way of saying what, what you need to do is help train those people. Right. So the you know the leaders at the top matter because they cast a very long shadow. They're influential. People look to them for clues about how to behave, and ideally, there's there's training and support, coaching provided to these leaders in the middle. Leaders in the middle play an absolutely mission critical role in shaping the individual work climates 
throughout you know a, a large and complex organization and what those leaders need to do is similarly be making the rational case for a genuine interest in others voice because of you know, the, the challenges and uncertainties that are faced in the particular work that we do whether it's you know feeding customers in a restaurant or serving them in a bank or you know, making automobiles, and it really matters, you know, that we hear from you. So I, I make that case, you know, I, I think leaders need help learning how to make that case in a credible way, but then they also need a few very simple but often challenging skills to master, and almost nothing is more important than the art of a good question, right, so that they're, they're readily, they're not just saying, I'd love to hear from you, they're saying, hey, Tom, what's on your mind? Well, what are you seeing? You know, what, what, was, uh, what was working well today? What wasn't working well today? And if I ask you a direct question, it feels quite awkward not to answer it. But the best way to know you're asking a genuine question is if you're curious to hear the answer. Right? I'm, and that means I'm going to be listening. Right? So that's sort of, in some ways, the third part is, are you listening? Are you responding in thoughtful, productive ways to what's going on? Are you appreciating the clear line of sight when it comes to someone comes to you with a problem. But you know, the, the, um, the theme that runs through this idea of how do, you, how do you put it into action, how do you scale it, how do you, yeah. is, is um, focus on the work. You know, focus on the customer, focus on the work. Don't focus on psychological safety. Okay. God forbid, right? Because that's, I mean, I'm all, right, I'm the biggest fan of psychological safety out there. Right. I still don't want you to have a psychological safety program. I don't want that to be the goal. It isn't the goal. It's cool. simply a necessary element of a highly function, you know, high functioning workplace. Okay. There, I, I, I would argue that if you've got people holding back their work relevant ideas, thoughts, concerns, questions, it's not a highly functional workplace. But, so, so focus on the work, right? So the work is, you know, what do we do? We make cars. We care for patients, we, whatever it is, let's focus on it right. and say, wow, what does it take to do this at a world-class standard? You know, what does it look like? What could go wrong? What can go right? You know, where are the opportunities? Where are the, where are the threats? Where are the risks? And the more we consider in a very deep way the nature of the work we do, the more it becomes clear in most settings right. that we need to hear from you. Right. And it that that really resonates with me and it, it would feel to me that high performing organizations naturally develop higher levels of trust as a byproduct yeah. of doing work well in a, a shared collaborative way yeah. absolutely right I mean, so it's a yeah it is it's a potentially virtuous cycle right. because the more you know I, I can say some things and then you can you know, we, we try it out, like I've become a little more open than I might normally be. And if the first thing that happens is you bite my head off, it, I'm going to stop it right there. If, in fact, you respond with some kind of interest or appreciation, I'm going to do it again and again. And, you know, slowly but surely, we, we change the nature of the workplace. Right. Because this is... I think this is one of the paradoxes of lean mm, mm. is that 
it's one circulatory system mm-hmm. in an mm-hmm. organization. Say trust is one, yeah. and operations is another. And lean yeah. has a number of prescribed methods and practices to boost performance. Mm-hmm. Vision, you know, ranging from visual management yeah. to so-called A three problem solving, and they kind of developed as ways of thinking together mm-hmm. in an open method using the scientific method. Mm-hmm. But there's this big hazard of companies regressing to them as and using them in the opposite ways that they were designed. That they are not used to foster teamwork and to identify and then improve best practice. Mm-hmm. But people use them instrumentally to kind of define jobs and define roles and so right. forth. So there's a question here down the line. Yeah, <laughs> but, no, it's... but it, 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 I'm, I'm curious. I think all of my questions have been about the way that the, the safety practices mm-hmm. interlace with, say, operational excellence or kind of some ways hardcore industrial engineering methods mm-hmm. of uh, of tracking what people do in an open way and figuring out the best way mm-hmm. and identifying errors as gaps between the best known way mm-hmm. and what's actually right. happening and giving people permission and training to get to the root cause of it and improve it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You're smiling. I love the idea. Of, it's true. I mean, this is things I think about a lot. Permission and training, I often think of it as permission plus process, right? If, yep. If, Yep. You need a, you need permission, which is a, an internal, um, almost psychological experience that I, I, I feel that I have permission right. to act, to try. Um, but I also, that's not enough. I could be trying all sorts of stupid things, right? Or, or missing the boat entirely, right? I need a process. I need training um, in, in and, and how can I, I can't improve a process unless I'm trained in today's best version of that process Unless right you know what the process right is. I need to know what the process is I <laughs> right. need to know what today what good looks like today and precisely what good looks like today um, and then you know lo and behold I see a way it could be even better and I need permission to express that um, yeah. so it's almost like we need to be you know we're, we're freeing people up to be gap hunters Yes. Uh, because they're looking for those gaps. They're looking from, for the gaps, both in terms of where today's process isn't optimal and in terms of things we might be missing altogether, you know, that we're just not even doing or thinking about, you know, the new products or new services that might. And I think one of the paradoxes, say, in, in a lean lens, is that some of the high-performing organizations that operate with lean principles have high degrees of trust and psychological mm-hmm. safety and at the same time are really disciplined oh. and demanding and push people not to be comfortable, mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. right? So there's an extent to which you can have uh, safety, but uh, not, ne- not always comfort. Right, and I, I hate the fact that that seems like a paradox, and I completely appreciate that it does, and I think that's the terminology, right? The terminology, psychological safety, 
immediately connotes comfortable. Right. Whereas I'm uncomfortable being myself or bringing myself, but that doesn't mean I'm supposed to be sitting back with my feet up. Right. So I actually think, I mean, in, in my it's you know, ideal work. world, it's hard, it's hard work. A, no matter how psychologically safe you, you know, we together work to make this workplace, um, there's still going to be things that are going to be hard for me to say. And I'm going to have to kind of, you know, screw up my courage and say them. But I know that I'm better off erring on the side of taking the risk than erring on the side of holding back. One personal experience of Lean is, like, I, I people would laugh if I t- claimed that I operate in a lean manner. <laughs> okay. There you go. Personally, yes, me too. Look at, yeah, I mean, I but, definitely don't pass the, uh, you know, visual, um, yeah, perfect organization. Yeah. 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 The times, and I try, I, I, I try to make an effort just to apply the elements that I try to, I try to practice it, you know, humbly mm-hmm. and knowing that I'm not there. The moments where I feel I'm, I'm making traction with mm. some of the basic ideas are not necessarily comfortable because they reveal problems that are actually not easy to solve. Like That's initially true. when I tried to do it, it's like, oh, I can, I can fix these easy problems. Right. And then it's, then it's having, needing to have yeah. a little bit of you know, oomph to face the things that don't feel good that it's it forces really hard you work. to tackle. Yeah, it's really hard work, and it's um, so just hard meaning effortful. Yeah, and we have to be confronted repeatedly with our inadequacies, which is not fun. Right? I don't. I don't want to be inadequate. You get your ass kicked. I want to be. Yeah. I mean, I want to be. You know, perfect. I want. I want everything I do to be just fantastic and everybody thinks so that's not realistic but it's a human and so you're right I mean I don't want to have to display my KPIs if I'm gonna have to face them a week later and and I fall short yeah yeah I don't want to fall short either um what are we gonna do though because we're human right and we are gonna fall short Um, we're gonna fall short at home we're gonna fall short at work um we're going and so I don't know if we could just make a nice, safe place for us to sort of right. live with our human fallibility, which is right. our birthright. You know, we are each and every one of us is a fallible human being, like it or not, full stop. Right? You can't escape that. But the workplace doesn't it, it, embrace it that. needs to embrace that. Right? It does. But it largely doesn't. It largely doesn't. Absolutely. Which I just think is um, then a little bit magical thinking. Right. You know, and so why should, you know, why should good companies and good leaders experiment with magical thinking? It just doesn't make sense. But we do it all the time. I mean, in this sense, you know, in the sense that we say, you will achieve X, you know, even if X is scientifically impossible today, and we say you will achieve it, and then, you know, in a good organization, I'm going to try like crazy to achieve it, and then I'm going to raise my hand with a smile and, and explain all of the shortcomings, you know, that we've discovered and how we're thinking about them. Right. But uh, here's, here's a kind of softball. Mm. <laughs> uh, just tell me why this matters to you. Just <laughs> seriously. I mean, it, it's, it's, uh... 
a long time ago, I had, when I had the blinding flash of the obvious that probably many, many people have, which is that we spend most of our waking hours at work, it suddenly felt important to me that we needed to do something, and particularly that I needed to do something uh, to make those hours good, right? Or as good as they could be, right? So that if we're going to be, and of course it came along with a recognition that most workplaces aren't where they need to be. And this isn't just, you know, to be nice. It's, I think we as human beings want to be put to good use in search, in, in service of a purpose that's larger than ourselves, and preferably with others. You know, we want to be doing something that makes a difference, preferably not all by ourselves, but with a group of, you know, committed, capable colleagues. And every day we're going to spend some large number of hours in the workplace, and that ought to be a place that accepts us, welcomes us, and puts us to good use. And that, to me, is a workplace where I'm, I don't have one hand tied behind my back by fear, yeah. especially fear about what others think of me or fear about what the boss is going to do if I make a mistake. So, so maybe it seems a little idealistic, but I don't think it really is because we know there are workplaces like that. You and I probably each separately have workplaces like that. And it just seems that anything I could do, and as a researcher I don't do much, but to make that more available to more people um, matters to me. Thanks to Amy Edmondson for talking to us about her book, The Fearless Organization, Creating Psychological Safety in the Workplace for Learning, Innovation, and Growth. The WLEI podcast is produced by Emma Rippa and Lori Moniz here at the Lean Enterprise Institute. And thanks to our listeners. If you have suggestions on topics you'd like us to discuss, email us at pod at lean.org. And tune in next Monday for another episode of WLEI.